Are you looking for truth from God's Word that you can understand and apply to your life? You'll find it today on Make It Clear with Dr. Stan Pons. Listen now as Stan makes it clear. Now, I know it's not where you're going to come read the, have the Bible read to you and you go home, but the purpose of picking out these verses, and by the way, they were passages, he then was substantiating his point using Scripture, and that's why it's so important. So I just want to tell you how you have blessed me. You blessed me because at the end of last quarter, I encouraged all of you to ask for a Bible for Christmas. How many of you showed me your new Bibles? I want to thank the person who donated Bibles for our racks up here so people who don't have a Bible can have it. How important it is to know God's Word and to know it correctly. So they began to preach, and oh, what a message. I just love to know how that happened. I would have loved to have been there to hear how fired up Peter was when he gave that message, how passionate he was because he walked with Christ. He was the closest to Christ when he was crucified. He was right there. So in a sense, he was so Christed, that's my word, even before he had the Holy Spirit and how powerful he must have been as the church's first preacher. So what he's doing here is explaining what happens. Now we need to move to the main body of the sermon. And this is probably more than what you need to know now because now you're going to hear what did that New Testament church that would become the New Testament church need to hear. Now again, spirit came down on only a few people. The message is going out because the church is getting launched. So if you will, pick it up at verse 22 now. You could look at verse 21 because it is kind of uh, important there because it says in the Old Testament, it shall be that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Again, it didn't say whoever believes and behaves. It doesn't say anything other than call upon the name of the Lord. That's another form of saying trust in, have faith in, rely upon, looking to Christ in Him alone, grace alone in Christ. All right, now verse 22 says, Men of Israel, listen to these words as He begins. And He's going to give you the four parts. You're going to see the life of Christ, the death of Christ, the resurrection of Christ, and the glorification of Christ. Let's pick it up now. So he says, Jesus, the Nazarene, kind of like saying this guy that came from some little no-name place, Jesus, a man attested to you by God. So he's talking about the humanity part of Jesus, who is deity, by God, with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know. Now again, what you've seen is, first of all, the life of Christ. These are signs and wonders that he did for other people, miracles, so that he would do that through his life, so that he would attest to who he was, so people would then listen and come to him and be able to share with him, share with them the message. So you see, beginning, the life of Christ. You don't see the birth of Christ, but that's assumed, and that's uh, very appropriate. Verse 20, and by the way, you may see the birth of Christ when you refer to Jesus, a Nazarene, a man attested to you. You might see the birth in that because only humans get born, all right? That's the humanity part of the deity. Now, verse 23, it moves a little bit further into the death of Christ. It says, this man, again, same one we're talking about, the one that did these miracles, this man delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, and I wish I had time to preach this. This means this, that God already knew we'd fall before we fell. He had the plan in place beforehand. And then through man's choices, God used those choices of man as he's orchestrating the simple plan of salvation. And then at right time, Jesus came and he paid for the sin of the world. So it's all had... So I want you to know that God was already there with a safety net available to you by his precious blood, his death on the cross for you so you could have eternal life ahead of time. So I tell you, that's beautiful. 
And I know you're also in the mind of God before you're in your mother's womb, and that's why we're so pro-life. It goes on to say, you nail to a cross by the hands of godless men. So he went from the life of Christ now to the death of Christ. You might want to take your pen and underline the word you nailed. He really wanted to drive home the fact you nailed to a cross. This man you nailed by the hands of godless men, and you put him to death. I will come back to that concept a little bit later in this morning's message, but you need to see the forcefulness. God predetermined the plan, but it's still you're responsible for what you did. Your responsibility did not subjugate what God had to do for his plan that he had available. So we had the life of Christ, we have the death of Christ. Now verse 24, you're going to see the resurrection of Christ. But God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death since it was impossible for him to be held in its power. So now you see the resurrection of Christ. You'll pause for a moment and let's take a breath. This next section of scripture that's going to be um, David speaking as if he's speaking the actual words of the Messiah, the coming suffering Savior, that whole section is so rich and it's so vital and it's so key for us to understand, catch this, that the resurrection was identified in the Old Testament, the death part, and then the need of resurrection is in the Old Testament so that, yes, Old Testament Jews could see a suffering Messiah in the future. Now, I would love to pick this apart. There's some neat thoughts about the agony of death and what does that mean in the original language and how that fits in. But I'm not going to talk about it today. What I've decided to do is to let you know that in a a message you want to give, it has to have the resurrection in there. It's important. But I want to unpack that on Easter Sunday. Now, some of you might say, well, that's going to be too heavy for my neighbor who drives a truck. I'm going to tell you that the Holy Spirit, with your prayers and my prayers, and as much as I can, I'm going to make it as simple and as clear as I can. I won't dummy it down, but I'll put it in their language. I want them to understand the resurrection. And since they were in the mind of God before they were born, and the Holy Spirit's plan was in the mind of God before they were born, and Jesus did all of this, and we have the pure word of God, the sufficient word, I believe that great things are going to happen to your friends when they hear me unpack this, and I will do it in bite-sized pieces where they can really grab, and by the time they leave here, they're going to know why we tout the resurrection as critical. I love Christmas. I think it's beautiful. I love the way you decorate. We have a beautiful place here. We do wonderful things. But I'm going to tell you, if all you had was a a baby who was born and then died, that was it, you'd have no Savior. It's the resurrection that sets this apart. We're not just the best religion. We're not even a religion. We are superior. There is nothing like what we have because no other founder of any type of religion ever did what Christ did. And so we have it all here. So I want to unpack that. But in a message, you have the introduction, connecting the people to what you want to say. Then in the message, you need to have in there the life of Christ. What was he like? What did he do? Who was he? And then what did he do on the cross? And he was resurrected. But it doesn't stop there. I'm so glad that not only did Jesus come back to life again, but so did Lazarus. What's the big deal? They both came back to life. The difference is Lazarus wasn't glorified then. Jesus is. And that's the key. So let's go back to the passage. So what you're going to do now is you're going to draw a line in your Bible from verse 24 where it says, but God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death since it was impossible for him to be held in his power. You'll understand all that in three weeks. Now go to verse 32. I know I'm skipping over some, but I will unpack all of that on on Resurrection Sunday, Easter Sunday. Then verse 32 says, this Jesus God raised up again, to which we are all witnesses. Now take your pencil and underline the word witnesses there. I think as he's saying this, that it's quite likely that there were people to whom he is speaking that were present when Jesus Christ 
was being brutalized before he went to the cross, when he was nailed to the cross, when they experienced what was going on, whether they were right there on site or they were nearby. We know that timing-wise, it was so close together that they either heard it, heard about it, or knew people who did. They knew Jesus before all of that happened. I mean, he was quite uh, popular, if you remember, the week before Jesus was uh, crucified on the cross. How many people came to see this guy? So you know these Jews knew about Christ. So So what Peter's doing is saying, remember him now? He's the one you put to death. He's the one that was raised up. And then he says, and you all are witnesses of this. He's reminding them that they are part of this story. And they can be a good part of it or they can be a judged part of it. So let's go a little bit further here. Verse 33. So now he's coming to the conclusion of his message. So the glorification is such a beautiful part here. Therefore, having been exalted. I love that, being exalted. Who has? Jesus. God raised up again. Raised up at the resurrection, but raised up to exaltation, to the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, by the way, which was promised before Jesus died, which was fulfilled after Jesus died and was resurrected, that promise actually happened. He was poured forth, Spirit, this which you both see and hear. Underline the word he now. That's going to link back to Holy Spirit. It doesn't say the Holy Spirit it was poured forth, it's he. He's not just the big man upstairs, it's not a power source, it's not an it, it is a he. It is the person of one of the three persons of the person of the Godhead. So he has poured forth this which you both see and hear. Now, this is so cool. Do you remember way back, like a few hours before then, the spirit, first of all, is the sound of like a mighty wind, so they heard, they didn't couldn't see the Spirit, so they hear the Spirit in a sense through the wind. In other words, something's happening. And then when you had these flamey things going on, now they're seeing something. Now they didn't see the Spirit, but they're seeing this happen, and he's now calling back to their senses. My wife was at the uh, hymn conference with a bunch of our people this last week, and she went into a class how how to teach where people will really learn. And when she got back from the class, I said, what did you learn from this class? She said... You should have been in it. So I learned that. She didn't say it that way. She was really nice. But she said one of the things she learned is how many people learn when they can see something and touch something as they do it. I wrestled a long time whether to put stuff on the PowerPoint up here. And I still wrestle now because some people are just enslaved to the PowerPoint. If they don't have it, they don't have their blanks filled and they go home feeling they didn't get a message. Well, Paul didn't have that. But on the other hand, the more that we can see and hear, the more that we can learn. So I commend you that use object lessons and all of you know about my favorite object lesson when I do the gospel. I usually hold up a what when I give the plan of salvation. Everybody? Wallet. My wallet, right? Now, you new people think, does that mean he's going to ask them for money? No, 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 no. I'll show it to you sometime. Back to, now it's going back. You people, you're the ones who saw Christ. You're the one who both saw and heard the Spirit. And by the way, if you want something for free, you want to see the Trinity? Verse 32, Jesus. Verse 32, God. Verse 33, Holy Spirit. Now, mark your Bibles. Okay, let's go a little bit further here because now he goes back to the Old Testament again and he validates this whole concept of Jesus being alive after resurrection and as well as glorification. So he's now using the Old Testament, showing that even in the Old Testament that Messiah would be glorified. That's found in verse 34. That's for another Sunday. Don't have a lot of time for that right now. But I want to go to verse 36 because we're getting into some important uh, material here, because as he concludes his message, 
He's now bringing this whole thing to a close. You remember they went from a time of confusion and bewilderment to amazement and astonishment. Then they were doubting this whole thing. Then they were mocking this whole thing. So things were happening. We're going to see two more responses from the people. The first one is we're going to see that when they heard that message, they were gripped with conviction as well as a time of seeking God. In other words, something was happening. They were sensing, wait a second, we need more of this. We need this. And so they began to become a seeker. And there's a lot of argument about churches today and church work about are you a seeker-friendly church? Are you a, uh, you know, what kind of church are you? I guess I'd like to go on record since this is going to go on CD and Internet and all this stuff. What do you believe, Pastor? I believe a church needs to be, in a sense, a seeker-friendly church. I don't believe it ought to be a seeker-driven church. So let me define the two because I think it needs to be divided. I do, biblically, I think it needs to be divided. If you're seeker-driven, that means that all you do, everything you do, is to appeal to the lost person. So in other words, it's almost like the lost because you're now finding what they think about everything. It's like the inmates running the asylum kind of a thing. They're driving you to do what you do. And nowhere in Scripture does it say that the lost people drive what we do. So we would, or I would never be, I hope then therefore we would never be, seeker-driven. I'm not driven by the seekers. Should we be seeker-sensitive? I believe we should be in the sense that when we do something, we ought to be so much in love with our neighbors knowing that they're coming in like deer in a headlight to what's going on. And more so on our island because there's so much Buddhism and all this other stuff that's out there that they don't know much about Christianity. We have two Muslim or one Muslim lady that's been coming frequently. This is all brand new to her. And so this is all deer in a headlight. So how can we just neglect them and preach what we already kind of know and we build on all that, that prior base of knowledge? No, to be seeker-sensitive is to be seeker-loving to make sure that while we do not compromise what the Word teaches and we do not compromise our Christian um, belief about how churches should grow and develop and be strong and to glorify the Lord, we should be sensitive to them that they are now coming in. Maybe a better word would be this, that there ought not to be any man-made obstacles that would hinder that person from hearing clearly and accurately the unadulterated, pure teaching of God's Word. And so then we would be seeker-sensitive. Bottom line, though, and take this to the bank, anybody who is seeking is really made a seeker by the Lord. And so if they are a seeker by the Lord, then we ought not to try to um, get between the Lord and that person who is now having that person begin to say, who am I, why am I here, where shall I go? For even Jeremiah says, whoever seeks me, if you seek me with all your heart, you will find me. And so those people out there, I don't want to have anything that's man-made and our own desire to be so goody two-shoes, or so to speak, that we hinder them from trusting Christ. So these now became seekers and very, very, very convicted. Go back to the passage, and I'll show you what I mean. Now, verse 37, primarily verse 36. Let me, let me do verse 36 again. Verse 36 says, Therefore let all the house of Israel know for certain, that means all you guys that are Jews, for certain that God has made him, who is Christ, both Lord and and Christ, we could say Messiah there, Lord Messiah, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now underline the word you again. You crucified him. Now you could draw a line from verse 36 to the verse that said that he's dead. You killed him. It's all part of that whole scheme. You did this to him. And so that being the case, now they're sensing, whoa, all that's happening now, I can see visually that there's supernatural things going on, that Jesus is who he claimed to be. Peter's now telling us the truth. We're the ones. We're carrying the weight of the responsibility. Well, I'll just end there. Now we see a little bit more that happens. Verse 37. 
The sermon ends at verse 36. Now there's a response. And so now we're going to see how these folks begin to response when he gives this appeal. He says, now when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart. That was a word like taking a knife into your body and then twisting it. There was such an emotional, mental realization that things aren't right. And they said to Peter and to the rest of the apostles, and I like that, apparently the other apostles were so visible, so much there, watch this, watch this, so much in sync with what Peter was saying that they looked at Peter, but they also had to look at all of these guys because they were all one. It was like the ultimate first spiritual dream team. Write that in your margin. Okay, so that was the group. Going back to the passage now. So it says here, they said, all right, looking at these guys, Trembling, perhaps, that's my thought. Then it says, brethren, what shall we do? Now, if you want to do something this afternoon, get your concordance out and see how many times that phrase, what shall we do? What shall we do to be saved? What shall we do? In other words, we've got a problem, Houston. What are we going to do? So you can be a seeker by looking at the outside and I don't know if I really want this, but you step from someone who's merely a seeker to someone who says, I want this by saying, I need this. What do we do now? How many of you can remember when you finally heard the gospel for the time that it brought conviction to your soul that you needed a Savior and you knew the only Savior was Jesus Christ the Lord? That conviction, what must I do? When Carol brought me that message after a meeting when we were teenagers, she explained the message to me and she said, Stan, how many birthdays do you need to to have in order to go to heaven? And I was 16 and I thought, well, if I died, I guess I need 16 birthdays to go to heaven. In a sense, I did. And I had 16, so I'd go to heaven. She said, no, you needed two. And she said, the first birth is your mom and dad. Your second birth is with the Lord. Your mom and dad did all the work. You were here. Jesus Christ does all the work, and you could be with him forever. You know what I said right then? I said, well, what do I do? How do I get born again? So you have Nicodemus and Stan Pons. How do I get born again? I was convicted. What do I do? How do I do this? And Carol was so great, she didn't say, well, Stan, you've got to be baptized, keep the commandments, jump up and down ten times, walk through glass, give me money, watch this, or even be water baptized. She simply said, well, here, Stan, John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that if you believe in him, you could have everlasting life. So that was the message. Let's go a little bit further in the passage. What must we do? And Peter said to them, verse 38, Let me just pause for a moment. How many of you have a Bible in front of you and you have verse 38 underlined? Does anybody have that underlined? Would you raise your hand? Good. I want you to underline this verse because you will be asked this verse if you begin to really start doing more God talk than um, double coupons at the grocery store talk. You're going to have someone come up to you and they're going to ask you about what about Acts chapter 2 verse 38, which says, let me read it to you. Peter said to them, repent. And each one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Well, now we got a little bit of a dilemma because you've been coming to this church so long and you've been hearing me say over and over again, it's by grace alone, through faith alone, Christ alone, for the glory of God alone. You can say that'll probably be on my tombstone. You know that that's true. But when you read this verse, it says, wait a second, it says repent. You hardly ever say repent, Stan. And it says, each of you be baptized for the forgiveness. You said believe, and this says be baptized. So what's going on right here? What's happening? How many of you read this verse if you don't have it marked in your Bible and you did scratch your head one time when you read it and said, man, I've got to figure out what this means. Would you raise your hand? Look at all of you. That happens. Well, let me see if I can make some sense on what this means. And now this is what's going to take 
the greatest amount of your thinking cap. So I'm going to start out by telling you, first of all, that when you go through the original language, I will give you some help with this, but even that, it is not exceptionally clear on what it's referring. Now you might say, well, in that case, then what do we do? They have a very simple thing. You follow biblical principles on proper interpretation of Scripture. And if you have those, then you will be safe in all the things that you do. Let me give you a couple just for your own curiosity, maybe. The first one is you have to go into the context and find out what is it saying in context. Well, the first thing you know, it's speaking to Jews. We know about baptism. They heard a lot about baptism. One, because John the Baptist baptized people. And then you know that Jesus was baptized. And in their culture at the time, many Jews were baptized for certain things. And so baptism by immersion was a common understanding of knowledge of identification of some type. And so now baptism was not strange to them. So somehow we get that in that context. Now we have to get back into what they call analogius scriptura. Now that's in Latin, that's not Greek, and it just means the analogy of Scripture. The analogy of Scripture is when you see a verse, you have to take that verse and run it through similar verses to see how it sets up against them. Now let me give you a pause here, sidebar. When you do that, you can say, here it says it's by faith alone, here it says repent and be baptized, therefore there's a contradiction. Maybe the rest of the stuff in the Bible is a contradiction. No. Yes, it will look like there's a contradiction in there if you just take it at face value. But if you take all the verses you're going to find on the salvation principle, message, etc., the content of it, you're going to find that it is overwhelmingly faith alone in Christ alone. So based on that, then you take that to the bank as being the primary interpretation of the passage. So you go back to this and you don't cut out that verse because it doesn't agree with all those other verses and have a real holy Bible. What you do then is you read and you begin to understand what does that really mean in context. When you begin to study the passage, you're going to come out some, with some wonderful understandings of what it means. And so I'd like to give some of that to you now. I'm going to give you three of the most common understandings of this passage. And I hope it will really help you in this. The first one is, when you talk to those of the Church of Christ background, most of them will tell you that, yes, you need to repent, turn from your sin, and you need to be baptized by immersion, that the two of them are together in order for you to be saved. Now, it sounds like that, and I can understand where they're going to come from that. And in my study of all of this, I have found that that is not at all what it could mean. The reason it couldn't mean that is because when you run that whole concept through Scripture, you have to understand what baptism is. Baptism is the immersion in water. In this passage, I do believe it does refer to that. I'll talk about that in just a moment here. But when you take it to other passages of Scripture, you're going to see that that repent and be baptized are two opposite. Repent is something that you do on the inside. So inside, inward, is the repentance. The word repent means to change your mind. It doesn't mean change your lifestyle, change your mind. Metanoia, noia means mind, meta means change. Change your life would be metamorphosis. You're changing like a worm into a butterfly, metamorphosis. All right, you're looking and being different. For salvation, it's metanoia, change your mind, and technically it stops there. So now just the aspect of repentance causes great dilemma to people because when you hear metanoia, just change your mind, now you have to take it through Scripture and understand what do you change your mind about. There's three primary things you change your mind about when you study repentance and the whole doctrine of, here's a big word, soteriology. That's called the doctrine of salvation. 
First, you have to change your mind about who Christ is. That's in context here. You have to see that Jesus is God who died and rose again. Payment for sin. Jesus is God. The second thing you need to change your mind about is that there is nothing you can humanly do in order to redeem or save yourself. You cannot turn from, you cannot change, you cannot stop, start, nothing, because you are dead in trespasses and sins, and it's only through the Holy Spirit that can change your lifestyle, and He only comes in when you trust Christ as Savior. So there's nothing you do to get saved. So, again, you have to change your mind about who you are. You are lost, hopelessly lost, and cannot do anything of yourself to go to heaven. That in itself is still not enough to get you saved. That's still not enough about which you need to repent. Change your mind about who Christ is. He is God. Change your mind about who you are, hopelessly lost. Then you need to change your mind about the way of salvation. The way of salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. And there's a humongous amount of Scripture, Old and New Testament, that still talk about belief. Abraham believed, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. So belief, and by the way, I'll throw this in. It's not just belief. It has to be belief in the right object, and it has to be in Christ. Now that is repentance. You're listening to Make It Clear with the teaching of Dr. Stan Pons, founder of Make It Clear Ministries. Make It Clear is dedicated to taking the Word of God with clarity into every person's world. It is the support of listeners like you who make the ministry of Make It Clear possible. You can provide your tax-deductible gift to Make It Clear online by going to makeitclear.org. Or you can mail your gift to Make It Clear, P.O. Box 607-901, Orlando, Florida, 32860. Thank you for helping us make it clear. If you would like to have Dr. Pond speak at your church or event, please send us an email at tellmemore at makeitclear.org. Thank you, and remember to make it clear. Thank you.